Let's start with this. Once upon a time, once upon a time, everyone relax. There was a small village nestled deep in the mountains. The villagers, they lived simple lives. Uh, they relied on each other for survival. And one day, a stranger came to the village, and he told a fantastic story of a land deep in the range of the mountains. Well, the sun was warm. The weather was mild. There was a beautiful lake of water that sparkled in crystal clarity. There were miraculous trees that grew this beautiful golden fruit. Now, the villagers were skeptical, and, and they laughed at the stranger. They thought he was a liar. Um, the elevation is too high. Uh, stuff doesn't grow up here. The temperature is too cold for such trees to even exist. They can't really grow and flourish. There's not enough rain to support that kind of fanciful orchard. Um, the soil is, is thin and rocky. It's just not possible. Reason after reason was given for why this just could not be true. But there was one young girl who listened intently to the stranger's story, and there's something that just pulled at her heart. She couldn't shake the idea of the golden fruit from her imagination. And so she determined to see for herself. So she set out on a journey to find the land beyond the land that she knew. Despite the doubts and the ridicule of her fellow villagers, sorry, the young girl prepared carefully for the trek. She ventured out alone, she followed the signs, and after a few hard weeks of travel, she found the place that the stranger spoke of. The sun was shining, and laughing, she threw off her pack to swim in the warm waters of the crystal lake. Refreshed, she smiled to see that there was tree after tree after tree filled with golden fruit. She ate her fill. And she returned to the village with baskets full of the delicious fruit. And the villagers were amazed. Happy Easter, everyone. We're, uh, welcome to the surge. Uh, I apologize. Our, our senior pastor is actually out today. His wife just had surgery. Um, actually on her esophagus, and it was like a really extreme procedure. And so he is out today, but he sends his love, and uh, he should be back with us next week. And, and in this message today, I'm just going to apologize now. You know, people sometimes say that my sense of humor and, and the way I think about things is a bit of a high-wire act, and, and I'll just I'll say sorry about that. So we're going to hop from stone to stone to stone. It's going to seem a little bit disconnected, but at the end, hopefully, we'll get across the stream, and we'll get to safely to the other side. So for the resurrection, uh, we're doing a four-message series and talking about four aspects of the resurrection. So the eyewitnesses, the credibility of the accounts, uh, the empty tomb itself, and the change in the disciples and the early church. And as we go through each of these things, we're really going to ask two questions, two questions. So the first question is the resurrection. Are there good, coherent reasons to believe it? The answer is yes. Yes, there are. <laughs> and two, what does that mean for my life? What does it mean for me? Because, you know, we, we, can, we can believe things are true, but it really doesn't matter that much to us. So as a silly example, if I said something about the moon landing, um, in spite of the conspiracy theories, you know, most of us probably believe the moon landing was true. Um, that's really cool. But it really doesn't have that much difference, make that much difference in our day-to-day lives. So like, you know, that's, that's really true and it's momentous, but, you know, it doesn't impact me tomorrow. The resurrection leads us to a different and an incredible thought. And the thought is this. Why should we believe Christianity? Why should we take it seriously? Because of what we see in Jesus is the reason. It's the answer to the question. Because of what we see in Jesus. So last week we talked about a sense of epistemology, which is how to know what is true and how we investigate that. And our best way to know that things are true is accepting that God helps us with that because we just can't get there on our own. Because God loves us, he actually helps us get to a sense of the truth. And our way of knowing that the resurrection and that his word to us is good and true and loving. The best argument is Jesus himself. It's not a series of facts. It's not a story. It's the man himself. He is the living case and argument for the gospel. 
So can I say that if you have a chance to talk to people who aren't there yet, which, you know, all of us know, be nice. Be nice, would you? <laughs> you know, it's like, don't, don't look to be smug or glib or arrogant, but rather share what you find in the gospel. Talk about yourself and, and, and share why you find the gospel to be a beautiful idea. So another thing that we've been doing in, in this series and that we'll do a little bit today um, is we'll actually talk about why some of the reasons why people don't accept the resurrection. And I'm not doing that to cause trouble or to, you know, make the other case too strongly, but I want to understand where my non-Christians are coming from. And so I want to understand some of these things so I can know where they're coming from. Not necessarily to, to, to counter the arguments or make a project, but I want to understand where they are so that I can, that I can talk to it and, uh, in, in a way that is credible and in a way that is, that is meaningful. So one, one of the things that, that people say about the resurrection um, that don't believe in it, they say something like this. They say that there's a lack of contemporary evidence outside of the New Testament that supports the claim of the resurrection. While the Gospels provide accounts of the resurrection, these were written several decades after the events they described. They're not considered historical, reliable historical records. Um, so one of the most commonly cited arguments against this, the lack of contemporary evidence, and while the Gospels provide these accounts, they were written later, and there's no mention of the resurrection in any non-Christian historical um, sources from the time period. And, and, it, and it goes something like this. If you just ask someone in New York or, or honestly around Northern Virginia, what do you think about the resurrection? Are you, are you Christian? No, I'm not a Christian. What do you think about it? They say, well... You're going to get something like this. Well, it was a legend that, that grew over time. Look, Jesus was a good guy. He was a good guy. He had really interesting things to say. He was a teacher of wisdom. His believers really loved him. And, and after he died, um, they started to develop the, these views of him that kind of grew over time. Like you're a kid, you catch a fish, and then, you know, you tell the story, and eventually you caught a fish. You know, the, the, the story grows over time. And so they started to develop these views of him that went higher, eventually getting to the idea that he was divine, that he was maybe even the son of God. The stories grew and grew. And after a few decades, the legend was more fiction than history. That the, that the resurrection got added into the mix over a couple of centuries. And then the legends got written down. So this is basically religion 101 from college from, you know, your professor that's causing problems. And, you know, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> which you know, And the only problem with this narrative is that literally none of it's true. None of it is true. Not a single bit of it is true. Okay? Um, this was written roughly 20 years after the actual events of Easter. 20 years, not hundreds of years, not 200 years, 20 years, this was written. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day <laughs> according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, and some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, this is extraordinary, and this doesn't fit the narrative of, oh, this suddenly grew over hundreds of years. Like, no, 20 years later, Paul's talking about Jesus died, he, he rose again, he popped up out of the grave, <laughs> and it's immediately after the fact, and he talks about this litany of eyewitnesses that, that saw him do this and said, look, they're still alive, you can go talk to them. Now, look, if, if we talked about this in contemporary terms, this would be like us today talking or writing about 9-11. Wasn't that long ago, about 20 years ago, 20, 22 years ago or so. And, and if I started talking about, you know, if I started getting the story wrong, there are people in this room that could correct me because you remember what happened. You were there. Okay, so, so this, is, this is amazing. If we messed up the story, people would call us on us, call us on this. But see what is here. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel very early on. Jesus came. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was really dead. He rose again. He actually rose again. And he called us into his story. 
This wasn't a legend that was uh, grew over time. It came complete right out of the box or right out of the grave, if you will. Like, it, just, it just showed up. It showed up complete. So I want to just talk about four things about the idea that there's no contemporary evidence that, that people like to, to talk about. So uh, the first thing is there are, in fact, extra biblical accounts about Jesus in the early church that happened early on. There's not a ton of them, but there are some, and that we should take them seriously. There's a guy named Josephus who was a Jewish historian uh, very early on, talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus uh, writing about 100 to 125 A.D. He talks about Christianity coming to Rome, and, and he, you know, he's writing about this. We have the writings from the early church fathers, guys like Pliny, Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch. They're all talking about Jesus in roughly the same way that we talk about Jesus. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. There are these amazing things that Christianity can do for your life. And these were only a few years. I mean, like, literally, these guys are writing. They were, they were overlapping the lives of the apostles, and they were the very next generation. These guys are writing very, very early on. And there are many other examples of this kind of thing. There are extra biblical cases. So the other thing I would say is there's no contemporary evidence. Look, the church existing at all counts as evidence, <laughs> right? So there was this guy named Jesus, and, and any serious historian thinks that he was an actual guy that walked around Galilee, and then he did stuff, and then something happened. Something happened, right? And then this, this organization started, this movement started, and, and it's continued to this day. Something happened. This, that, that something happened counts as evidence that something happened, right? Okay. So right now, there are 2.4 billion Christians on earth. 2.4 billion. That's a lot of people, okay? At the church's current growth rate worldwide, there will be something like 3.4 billion Christians by the year 2050 at current rate of growth, Okay. So the people saying the church is dead, it's done, it's going to go away. Like, nope, not yet. Well, there's going to be 3.4 billion, you know, people who actually believe in the resurrection. They Christians have believed it from the beginning. They believe it now. They're going to believe it into 2050. Um, the church started in the first century and flourished, and that it did is contemporary evidence that supports the claim of the resurrection because it was the pillar that they built the church on. So let me let me help you with this. Look at look at the statement again. So it says there's a lack of contemporary evidence outside of the New Testament. Now, I, I got to say, I, I can't seriously call myself a scholar. I've, I've done some graduate work, yeah, 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 whatever. But this kind of thing absolutely makes me crazy. It just makes me crazy. And here's why it makes me crazy. Because the New Testament counts. <laughs> it actually counts as a historical document. You don't get to leave out 1 Corinthians because you don't like it. So look, this would be like saying, Except for the thousands of hours of news coverage, newspaper coverage, machine, magazine coverage, radio, TV, movies, documentaries, collected accounts from eyewitnesses and the firefighters digging through the rubble in New York City, there's really not much contemporary evidence for 9-11. It's like, okay, we, yeah, but like, that's a mountain of evidence that you're, that you're overlooking, that you're ignoring. Don't do that. That's not fair. It'd be like saying, except for the millions of records and CDs and cassette tapes and TV footage and movies and concerts and the millions of eyewitnesses who saw them play, there's really not much contemporary evidence for the Beatles. I'm not sure they actually existed. No, the Beatles actually existed. You can listen to their music today. They actually existed. And you can't just discount evidence that you don't like. So gently, let me say this way of arguing, stop it. Stop that. <laughs> don't, do, don't do that. That's not, that's not a good way to go. Okay, so let me just give you just five minutes of nerd and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue on. So... In terms of dating of the ancient text, and is, are the accounts of the resurrection credible? Look, before the printing press, the printing press was kind of the line in the sand. It was this cataclysmic event in how we interact with books and written words. But before that, there weren't, really, weren't books. Think scrolls. 
And there really weren't a way to mass produce scrolls. It was a guy with a, some kind of a stylus that would write things on the scrolls by hand. It, like, literally, a guy would copy things down uh, very painfully, very painstakingly. Not everyone was literate. Written material was much more expensive than it is today. It was much more rare than it is today. So we have the time of historical writing. And, and from ancient texts of history, say Plato or Homer or someone of that, of that slice, we have, you know, they wrote something down. People made, it, it took off, people made copies of it. And what we, and we fast forward to today, what we have today is we don't have the original manuscript that Homer wrote down the Iliad. We don't, we don't have that. What we have is copies from sometime later. So I just want to go through three examples of texts from history that you all know and that you all know about. And let me show you how they dated and, and how, how, how they, they did. So let me give you this. So Plato, um, guy who wrote the Mino, the Republic. You've heard of Plato, right? It's like it's not the not the delicious uh, children's putty, but actually the philosopher. He he. Uh, from today, we have 250 manuscripts of Plato. Most of these are fragments. They're like a page or a little slice of a page, and and you know, um, actually, and, and how this happens is they they made a copy of some work of Plato. Over time, it degraded. It got sold in a, in a garage sale, and you know, some pages were missing. Actually, just this week, Karen tried to pass off a Pride and Prejudice fragment to Evangeline with the first 19 pages missing, but she, she called her on it, so, so it's good. So, but so we understand that books and, and these things sometimes fall apart. So the earliest fragment that we have from Plato is 350 to 450 years after his death. That's a long time, 400 years after his death. Okay, the earliest fragment in terms of a complete book, a complete work of Plato that we have today is dated 1,200 years after Plato's death. 1,200 years. It's a long time. Okay, so if we go to Aristotle, we have 350 manuscripts, mostly little fragments of stuff. The earliest fragment that we have is literally 1,200 years after his death. This was, this was amazing to me. Now, there was a lot of Aristotle flying, flying around, a lot of manuscripts, but we don't have them today. What we have today is something from 1,200 years after Aristotle's death. The first complete work of Aristotle we have is something like 1,600 years after he died. It's a long time. Okay, uh, Homer. Homer's kind of the winner in the ancient text category. There's a thousand manuscripts. Homer's very popular, mostly the Iliad. But again, a lot, a lot of fragments, and, and you get like a lot of, apparently Homer is very quotable, so you get like Homer on a piece of pottery or Homer on a candle or something, and so these all count as fragments. So the earliest fragment we have from Homer is 400 years after we estimate when he wrote things, um, and the earliest complete copy of the Iliad or the Odyssey is 1,700 years later that we have today. Okay, so let me, let's compare that to the New Testament. So we have Plato, Aristotle, Homer, hundreds of years after the fact. Now the New Testament, we have 24,000 manuscripts, okay? 6,000 in Greek. There's a lot of fragments. If you, if you include all the translations into Coptic and Ethiopian and, you know, Latin, and you keep going on and on, you've got like 19,000 additional manuscripts and fragments and books. The earliest fragment that we have is from the book of John. Now they think they wrote, the, the best date we have for the book of John is people think he wrote it about 8096 or so. And then we actually have a fragment from the book of John that's dated about 125. So 30 years after John wrote the book, we've got a little piece of a book of, book of John that we have. You know, it's the, the P25. It's really cool. Um, and then the earliest manuscript in terms of a complete book that we have, like all the writings of Paul, basically, is from like 100 years after they were written. So, you know, 400 years, 1,200 years, 1,600 years, 30 years. The, the evidence for the New Testament is just extraordinary. There are more pieces of the New Testament than any book in ancient history, and it's not even close. They're the Usain Bolt. It's like it's not, it's not close. It just blows everybody off the track. There's more evidence 
for the New Testament and the, and the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are for all these other guys combined. Okay, so there's a, there's a quote that you just, you just take this home. So the New Testament has more, is, it's a guy named Gary Habermas, he says this, uh, the New Testament has more manuscript evidence from a far earlier period than other classical works. There are just under 6,000 New Testament tra- manuscripts with copies of most of the New Testament dating from just 100 years or so after its writing. Classical sources almost always have fewer than 20 copies each, and they usually date from 700 to 1,400 years after the composition of the work. In this regard, the classics are not as well attested as the New Testament. So what is my point? This is my point. Don't have a double standard when it comes to dealing with ancient texts. If you have a rule of thumb, go for it. And so if you're going to doubt the New Testament or you're going to say it's not credible or it doesn't count or whatever, that's fine. Do that with Plato and Homer and Aristotle as well. But nobody does that. Everybody thinks that Homer was a real guy walking around. I do. Everybody believes in Aristotle. You know, no one's, was, was, was Socrates really a historical figure? Like, yeah, there's some crank somewhere that says that. Most people think that Socrates was a real guy walking around in Athens. And so if you can read, if you can believe that, that Socrates existed, then you can also believe that Jesus existed, right? And, that, and if you can read the Republic as it's meant to be read, then you can do the same thing with the book of Luke. Okay, so um, there's something really, really fun, that, just an idea that I've not been able to get away from. And, and I did this last year, and it was, you know, it was kind of fun. Um, so in the stories of the resurrection, so by the way, this is, this is from Gordon Ramsay, uh, Fish and Chips. Uh, Karen and Evangeline were very kind to, to, uh, to get this for me yesterday. So um, I'll just put this here as a spiritual reminder. Okay, there we go. Um, so in the resurrection stories and in multiple stories, there's this extraordinary thing that happens. And basically the disciples are going, I don't know, I don't know, did he really rise again? I'm not sure, I, I'm not convinced. And then Jesus says, Can, do you have something to eat? <laughs> do you have a piece of fish? And he snacks on a piece of fish and they go, you did rise from the dead. <laughs> it's like, for some reason, the, the eating of the piece of fish is, is this thing that, that really pushes them over the edge. And I just, I've just been fascinated by this idea for a year. I just can't get away from the idea. And so, you know, I have here a piece of fish that's going to convince all of you that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So here's a piece of fish. So if you just need any help, here you go. This is the thing that got the first disciples in the first century over the hump. Ah, oh, that's pretty good, actually. That's what Gordon Ramsay knows his business. So it's a piece of fish. So it's just, I can't get away from this idea of the, the fish being the thing that get the disciples to finally understand the resurrection. It's such a random detail. It's just such a stupid little thing. Um, but something connected for me this week, and I think I understand part of what's going on with the fish. So here it is. One of the other arguments against the resurrection, and again, I don't mean to spend too much time on this, but um, is the hallucination theory. So the hallucination theory goes like this. The appearances of Jesus after his death could have been the result of hallucinations or visions experienced by his followers, or psychological stress that people can imagine things when they're under a lot of pressure. I'm sorry, give me one second. So, were the disciples in extreme stress almost as much as I am now from the fish? Sure. Um, did they think that the guy that they thought was the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who was literally going to fix the broken world, he was just arrested and executed. Jesus, the guy who was going to fix the world, was just arrested. He was executed very publicly, very horribly. Of course the disciples were freaked out. Of course they were under stress. Now, can you also have a group of people who thought they saw something that they didn't actually see? Sure. David Copperfield makes a very good living doing this 150 times a year. But there are two reasons why I don't find this compelling. The first objection would be that it's less believable that Mary Magdalene hallucinated near the tomb than Peter hallucinated separately. Then the guys on the road to Emmaus hallucinated, followed by 10 disciples in a room. 
Then there was another hallucination on the beach by seven disciples. Then another hallucination of 500 people at once, all having similar, sometimes individual, sometimes shared hallucinations that are all consistent and pointing the same direction. At some point, it's not, it's not believable to me anymore. It's like you didn't have 17 hallucinations. Like, stop it. Okay. So um, there's, there's a passage in the book of Luke that I want to read uh, to bring home the second piece of why I don't buy the, the hallucination theory. So it's this. This is Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost or a hallucination. <laughs> he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, also from Gordon Ramsay, by the way. <coughs> yeah, and he said, this is, and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my fathers promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So my second objection to the hallucination theory is in this story. Hallucinations don't eat fish. They don't. They don't eat a piece of fish. This doesn't ever happen. As reality checks go, it's a good one. And I really need to develop this as an idea, but I'll blame it on Karen. You know, Karen Reese, the celebrated founder of snack theology, right? You know, this whole new movement of Christianity. Um, she has some recipes that will lead you closer to God or, or, you know, really close to God if you actually choke to death on the fish. Um, so, but the, the gospel is this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Uh, a guy named Tim Keller said that. And it's just a beautiful quote. And so what do I want you to do? What, what, does, what difference does the truth of the resurrection, can we believe it? Yeah, there are good reasons to believe it. But what difference does it make in our lives? This is what I want you to do. I want you to go and see. Go and see. Take a look at it. If the gospel is an open question for you, you probably have a hundred problems, a thousand questions, five objections, a bunch of stuff you don't understand, stuff you have honest questions about. It might be a long list. And what I'd like to suggest to you is this. It's a radical idea. Clear all of it off the table, all of it. Forget about all of those things. And just for a minute, ask one question. One, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? Because that's the big one. And guess what? If he did rise from the dead, he can answer any question. He can solve any problem. <laughs> you know, he can overcome any objection, it turns out. That's the big one. And for everyone who hears this, this is very good news. It's very good news. The world is filled with reasons to not listen to the stranger, to not investigate the mountains, to not go look for the golden fruit. But, you know, it's too cold. There's no rain. The soil is bad. I, you know, I want to challenge you. Make the trip. See for yourself. Take a look. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Think deeply about these stories that have come down to us. Why? To help us, to get us there. Have a piece of fish. Let the fish blow your mind, right? right? Know that the resurrection is not just for Jesus, but the resurrection is for us. It's for all of us. When he opened that door, he opened it for all of us. 
and not just to reconcile him to himself, but we actually get to participate in the resurrection someday. Now, his power can restore us right here, right now, today. But on that final day, everybody who has died, everyone who has passed away, they're going to rise again. They're going to stand in the presence of God. They're going to be resurrected because of what Jesus did. And they're going to stand in the presence of God, who is both loving and who is also holy. And we, all of us, every one of us, is going to give an account of what we did with the gifts that he gave us. So be ready to give a good account. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, for this day you've given us. Thank you for Easter, and thank you for the grace of people who are, are willing to, <laughs> to listen to me while I'm choking to death on fish. Lord, I, I just thank you for everything that you're doing, and I pray that you would just lead us to the thought that can open our hearts to you, to the idea that you actually rose from the dead, that you actually brought life, into the world in this way. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us powerfully where we are, that you would speak to us individually, and we just thank you for everything that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.